Hello, listeners. It's Lawrence Coletti, executive producer of Legal Talk Network. I want to tell you about one of our longest-running and most informative shows, The Digital Edge. Each month, our expert hosts Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway talk with renowned authors, speakers, and legal technology gurus about tools, tips, and tricks for running a successful legal practice. If you're seeking a competitive advantage for your firm, make sure to catch The Digital Edge on our website at LegalTalkNetwork.com, in Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcasting app. And now, on to the show. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Hi, I'm Monica Bay, and welcome to Law Technology Now. We have a terrific guest today. It's Brian Cuban, and yes, he is the brother of Mark Cuban. He has a new book. It's called The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. It is an amazing book, and I recommend it highly. Uh, Welcome, and uh, we're delighted to have you, Brian. Uh, Why don't you start off a little bit and tell us about yourself? It's great to be on your podcast, Monica. Thanks for having me. Uh, As you might guess from the title of the book, I am a lawyer. I do not practice anymore, but let's get the elephant out of the room. I have not been disbarred, and my license has not been suspended, but it's not for a lack of trying. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you decide to um, not practice anymore? It was an evolution. As you know from the book, I never really wanted to be a lawyer. I went to law school for a lot of reasons that are not associated with the typical trajectory that people generally go through, you know, wanting to change the world, wanting to make money, do this or do that. So I was somebody who went to law school for a lot of the wrong reasons. And when I finally decided who I really was and found out who I really was as a person, we're a profession of thinkers, right? If you uh, look at a recent Myers-Briggs study on the type of, uh, people who are in the legal profession, we are predominantly a profession of thinkers. I'm a feeler, according to Myers-Briggs. Less than 5% of all those in the legal profession are feelers. So I transitioned from a profession of thinkers to a profession of feelers, where I am much more at home and happy in helping other people. That doesn't mean you can't be a feeler in the legal profession. For people who might not be familiar with that, what do you mean by that? It means I tend to, as a feeler, I tend to feel other people's emotions. I tend to wear them on my sleeve. I might externalize other people's emotions and how I express things. And so that can take a toll on somebody in the legal profession when we're dealing with, you know, depending on your area of law, you're dealing with tragedy, uh, especially if you're a criminal defense lawyer or a family lawyer, you're dealing with a lot of stress, other people's tragedy, and you can tend to internalize that as a feeler. So for me, it was much better for me to get in a profession 
where I am just focused on helping other people through my experience, using my feelings, using my emotions. That is how I best define that, if that makes sense. So are you doing full-time as an author now? Uh, I, I, am a, I'm, I speak and I help uh, other people deal with you know, their issues. Terrific. I'm not a counselor. I don't have a PhD after my name, but my goal is always every day is to hopefully use my experience in recovering from addiction to help somebody either take another step in their journey or take that first step in a recovery, whether it's a lawyer, a law student, or anyone that just approaches me, just paying it forward. So let's go to the beginning of your book. It is one of the most fascinating intros I've ever read in my life. What gave you the courage, especially because you are in an arena where you have a lot of being visible? How did you start this book and how did you decide to be so out there? And that looked really scary to me. So we're talking about the introduction where I talk about trading Dallas Mavericks championship tickets in 2006 to my cocaine deal. Right. I did not tell that story until two years ago. Okay, right around when I started writing the book, because when you're writing a book, Monica, and you're searching through all the stories in your life to find out what has a message and what doesn't and what's salacious and what's going to hurt people, that was a story where I really waited because I didn't want to hurt anyone in my family. I didn't want to embarrass my family. But 10 years later, And in conversations with Mark, I thought it was okay to finally tell that story. So it wasn't a story that I told back when it happened. (laughs) That's for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. It was a story that there was a message, and the message is the insanity of addiction. You know, what we go through and the things you can do. And so I thought it was an important message that balanced out any lingering embarrassment. And my family was on board with it. So that's why I waited so long to tell that story. It's funny, when I first told the story, it got picked up two years ago. It got picked up as a front-page sports story in our local newspaper here. And I'm like, dude, that happened six years ago. (laughs) But but they thought it was was salacious and posted it in the sports section, so that was funny. But it shows. It just shows you, you know, where addiction can take you. Everyone who has struggled with addiction whether it's alcohol, cocaine, heroin. I mean, we all have those stories, right? This one just happens to be a little more high-profile and interesting because of its nature. What struck me on it was two things. You know, one was the amazing risk that you were putting yourself into at the time. Being in an environment with the amazing amount of the MBA folks and being in very high visibility that must have been very scary for you. And could you share with our listeners a little bit about the day that you actually went and got a bunch of stuff to be able to cut through your walls and hide your stuff and then turn around and throw it in the toilet? That was very, very intense. Absolutely. It's it's a funny, you have to have humor in recovery. And when I look back now, it's a funny story, which is why I told it. And it has a message. The Mavericks in 2006, the Dallas Mavericks of the NBA, my brother had bought the team in 2000. It was their first trip to the NBA championship. We were playing the Miami Heat. I was deep in addiction. I was already at the point where uh, it had cratered my legal career. It, w- it was a very uh, difficult time for me. And I saw the team going to the championship 
not as a great thing for the city, for my brother, proud of my brother, but as an opportunity to take tickets and trade them to my cocaine dealer at scalpers prices and cocaine. So I got two tickets that I positioned that I was getting them for friends, very good seats, and I took those tickets and I traded them to my cocaine dealer. He showed up at my house. You know, I, I was a high-class drug addict, cocaine addict. He delivered. <laughs> <laughs> and he had $1,000 of cocaine in his Ziploc baggie. So I trade him the tickets. He gives me the cocaine. I run up to my home office, and I lay out all the cocaine on my desk like I'm Scarface. You're looking at my cocaine kingdom. And I do a little. And at that point in my life and in my journey through addiction, Drugs and cocaine had really stopped giving me the high I had sought, and I had obtained the very first time I did it in a bathroom in Dallas, Texas in 2007 and instantly became addicted. I was really chasing a high that was never going to come again. I did some and really every time now just produced shame and guilt and pain. And then I was also deep in uh, cocaine paranoia. I had all this cocaine on my desk. I started imagining that I heard police outside and so I took the cocaine and I hit it and I drove up to Home Depot and I really, I had enough cocaine to go away for a long time. I'm a lawyer. I know these things. <laughs> <laughs> so I put all the cocaine in the closet and I drove to Home Depot, not far from my house. I bought a drill, a saw, an electrical out faceplate outlets. I drove back to my house. I went to every closet in my house and I drilled through the drywall and cut through the drywall and created these fake electrical outlets. And I put all the cocaine in these separate Ziploc baggies and put it behind all the electrical outlets. Like the cops, the DEA and the drug dogs have never thought of that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I thought I was being brilliant. It was perfectly logical. So I kept a little out to do some more. I did another line of cocaine. And again, I wasn't no longer, I was just not getting that high anymore that had abandoned me years ago. And it was a high that the first time I did it in a bathroom, I looked in the mirror for the first time in my life, Monica, I saw Brian that loved himself, that was accepted by others, and that was not shy, that was confident. And I had to have that feeling again and again and again. And that was the instant psychological addiction to cocaine that occurred at that point. The physical addiction developed over time. So, not getting that high anymore. I get, I get paranoid again, thinking the cops are going to get me. Looking out the window, the shades are drawn, thinking I see the lights out front. Woo, woo! I go back to each closet. I take the drill I undrill each electrical outlet. I put it all back in the Ziploc bag. I go up to my bathroom, get down on my knees, and dump it all down the toilet. And it was about a how much money that we were throwing out with that? About a thousand dollars in cocaine. About a thousand dollars in cocaine. So was that a turning point for you? Oh no, no, no. Uh, that that was not my turning point. The next the next morning, the, the only thing that occurred to me was what an idiot I was for flushing all my cocaine down the toilet. <laughs> You know, as, as the paranoia gets in the rear view mirror, I thought, what an idiot I am. Now I have no cocaine. There's another game tonight. Now I have no cocaine to get high for the game. So I call my cocaine dealer again. I get two more tickets. Lie to my family, get two more tickets, 
trade them again to my cocaine dealer for another $1,000 in cocaine, go through the same process of putting it in the electrical outlets, trying to, you know, doing a line, feeling the shame and the pain of addiction. And then I take it all back out again, go up to the toilet again, drop to my knees, and like I had done so many times, and praying or hoping for someone to take the pain and shame of my addiction away. And I flushed it all down the toilet again. Now they say when Dallas flushes, it ends up in Houston, so some people in Houston got really high that night. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your turning point? The turning point was a little over a year later in 2007, in April 2007, uh, when I had a drug and alcohol and Xanax-induced blackout, cocaine, alcohol, and uh, Xanax-induced blackout that lasted over two days. And I had begun dating someone. She had moved in with me. And she went away for the weekend, and I went to a bachelor party in Dallas. And the next thing I know, it was two days later, and she's looking over my bed. There's alcohol everywhere. There's cocaine everywhere. There's Xanax strewn about the room. And she knew nothing about this. I had a JD in the law, but I had a PhD in being able to hide these things from people. You know, and putting on a mask of respectability and being able to function for a period of time to fool people. You know, you, you get really good at that when you're, when you're dealing with this stuff. So it was at that point where I went up my second trip back to a local psychiatric facility. The first trip was in 2005 after I became suicidal. And that uh-huh. wasn't even my low, my low point in terms of turning my life around, beginning recovery. And we can talk about that if you want. But uh, at this point, I go back to the psychiatric facility and my girlfriend's crying and you know, I'm thinking she's gone. She actually stood by me and stuck with me in recovery. And we dated for 10 years and ended up getting married in October. So she stood by me. Congratulations. Thank you. So, and, and I wouldn't have, I would have left if I were her. And I, and a few things occurred to me standing in that parking lot of the psychiatric facility while waiting for her to check in. One was that she was going to leave and she did. And two, that I would be dead because there wouldn't be a third trip back. I was going to, I would overdose or, or become suicidal again and kill myself. And this time actually, you know, complete the, complete the act. And Monica, I also thought about my family in that parking lot. I thought about my father and my two brothers, Mark and Jeff growing up in Pittsburgh, PA decades before. I mean, we're all in our fifties now. My father is now in his nineties. He's a veteran of, uh, the Pacific and the Korean War, he's still alive. He was the middle of three children like I am. He used to say something to us growing up all the time. He would say, kiddingly, he'd go, hey, guys, wives may come and go. Well, for me, they certainly have. I've been married three times. <laughs> this one will certainly last. Uh, girlfriends may come and go. And he's kidding, of course, being tongue-in-cheek. But when push comes to shove, all you have is each other, mm-hmm. no matter where you go in life. And this is in the 70s in Pittsburgh, PA. No matter what you do, no matter where your journey takes you, you pick up that phone regularly and you call your brother and you tell your brother you love him. You ask your brother if there is anything you can do for him. My father understood this gift of brotherhood, the bond of brothers. He was the middle of three. He and his older brother, Marty, fixed cars in the same place in Pittsburgh, PA, from the end of the Korean War until his older brother passed away in 99. decades. They fixed cars in the same place. Now, it was often like a bad marriage, (laughs) but (laughs) this was the bond. 
I thought about that. That's what turned me around. I didn't want to lose my family. So we're running out of time, and I want to talk a little bit about the legal profession and what we need to do. I think, you know, we're both lawyers, and I also don't practice because I went right back into journalism. But the best decision I ever made in my life was to go to law school and get my ticket. And I will mm-hmm. never let go of my ticket. I don't care that, I don't, that I'm not practicing. I'm happy. Well, yeah. not completely happy, but I send that 500 plus check to the California I do bar too. every year. I, do. You know? I, I let my Pennsylvania license lapse because I'm never, I'm never going back, but I keep my Texas license. <laughs> I keep, I, it was so hard for me to get it. And that's a whole nother story. And I will never go out off with that. Um, That being said, I think doctors and lawyers and folks like that, it's very, very hard in my, from what I have heard, from what I know, to be able to go to ask help and to, because we're all the ones, the lawyers are the ones who are the fixers. I don't mean that negatively, but they, you go to them when they have trouble. And I think it's hard for lawyers to admit that they have problems. What does the organized bar need to do to help people with addictions, you know, whether it's heroin, whether it's alcohol, whatever it is? What does the bar need to do? Because there's a lot of people with this. There are several things we can do. Yeah, the, the local bars can do. And it takes more than a local bar because it's a systematic problem. We need to start small and changing the culture. We need to stop or rethink all these happy hours, the Bar Association happy hours. I see it all the time. Good point. My own local bar here included. Yeah. Uh, there is a culture of drinking that starts in law school, that goes through the legal profession, and lawyers become culturalized to, to rely on that to soothe their issues, to mask their problems, to not feel the pain or the, to not be feelers, right? Mm-hmm. And so the bars need to stop catering to that and pandering to that. Okay, we can do other things. We need to change the culture of drinking. We can start small, find other things beyond that besides happy hours. That's a really good idea. I, and, and Monica, I see it in my own local bar on Twitter. You know, happy hour memes. You know, young lawyers happy hour tonight. Guys, it's only Wednesday. And you're tweeting about young lawyers happy hours. You know? And this is especially problematic, Monica, when you look at the recent ABA Hazleton study, which found that lawyers under 10 years are at the highest risk for problem drinking, over 33%. One in three lawyers under 10 years practicing lawyers have a drinking issue. And we're inviting them to happy hours? That's a problem. That's a really interesting thing, because it's not just law. I think it's probably anything. It's And, you know, I grew up in the whole thing where... People just do that. So that's an interesting thing. And, and maybe if they want to have those things and they have some of the alcohol, maybe what they do is make sure they've got a lot of other foods or drinking or whatever. Um, that's you know, true. Um, and that, that's an issue within law firms, too. I mean, the, the, we call it the champagne yep. circuit, the networking circuit, and how they deal with that. That's an issue law firms need to deal with, too, as well as the bar. But moving on, number two... There is a huge distrust of the systems in place. I spoke at a Dallas bar event one time, in a, and I was talking about legal assistance programs. Every state has one. 
but there's a great distrust of them because they are viewed by many lawyers as arms of the state bar. They're in the state bar building. They have, they share the same number as the state bar. And lawyers don't always trust these programs, so they're not going to use them. Absolutely. Because if they lose their ticket, they're out. That's right. That's right. So we need to figure out way our state bars need to figure out ways to break through this distrust. And it's difficult because legal assistance programs don't have big budgets. Right. You know, we need to be going into law firms. We need to you know, make sure we are accessible to law firms, to the solo practitioner, where social isolation is a big deal. I spoke at a lunchtime Dallas Bar event, and a very seasoned litigator came up to me afterwards and said, yeah, that's all great, Ryan, but it's not confidential. It's, you know, the state bar will find out. I'm like, it's protected by statute. It is confidential. Every state's protected by statute. No, it's not. How do you know that? Another lawyer told me. Yeah. Well, how does he know that? I don't know. So you're, you're a seasoned litigator, and you're going with a guy told a guy who told a guy that it's not confidential, Right. The triple hearsay. I, I get that. And I think people are terrified because, you know, I don't practice and I would go bananas if I lost my ticket. You know, it, it, that's it's... right. So, so the legal assistance programs, the bar associations, the law firms all have to play a part in breaking this stigma because lawyers don't want to lose their ticket. And lawyers also were trained from law school on that being vulnerable is being weak. Okay. Yes. Vulnerability yeah. is what we take advantage of in other people, right? Vulnerability is not what we allow ourselves to feel. Forget being a lawyer. In anyone's recovery, the, the ability to allow yourself to be vulnerable, to allow yourself to feel, to allow yourself to delve into your pain is a key to anyone's recovery. And lawyers are especially resistant as a profession to doing this. Yeah, I think lawyers and doctors in particular... That's right. And, and lawyers have a higher addiction rate than doctors, according to the ABA Hayes study. Oh, I didn't and know that. And we have an yeah. e- almost equal rate of uh, depression, around 30%, 28 to 30%. Yep. And anxiety. But for lawyers who need help, how are we going to empower them? How are we going to empower law students to allow themselves to feel? It's a difficult issue. When I speak to law students or lawyers who are struggling, I don't talk to them about you know, they're drug and alcohol use, they wouldn't be talking to me if there wasn't a problem, right? I want to know about them as people. You were very, very lucky to have a very strong family. Yes, and I'm still lucky. What can other families and friends do, you know, based on your understanding and experiences, what can they do when there are folks in the family that are having addictions of any kind. I mean, it's so rampant. And I think the families themselves often are either breathtakingly naive or nervous or embarrassed or whatever. Or they're riddled with shame and guilt. They're riddled with shame and guilt. The first thing I tell families, one, is it's not your fault. Families, spouses, parents, siblings do not cause addiction. There is a saying, genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. We don't know what causes addiction, but we know that environment does not equate with cause. So that's the first step, getting them past the guilt. The second is letting people know you aren't expected to know what to do, but you can educate yourself. Okay? There is no magic pill for recovery. Have you looked at Al-Anon, which is you know, a 
you know, a code thing with Alcoholics Anonymous, 12 Step 2, for families going through stuff. Have you gotten any support for yourself? Are you in counseling? Do you know what options are available for your family member? Because education leads to pathways for recovery. You can't force someone to go down that pathway, but you can lay the path if you educate yourself. So these are the things I discuss with families because there's no magic pill and families want a magic pill and there isn't one, but you can lay the best odds possible and that's all you can do. But most importantly, what I tell families is you have to take care of you. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because you can't let someone struggling drag you down with them. Take care of you. Get into counseling, get support, get advice from other people going through the same thing. Fight through the guilt and be sure you are dealing with your ability to deal with life on its own terms versus dealing with life on a family member's terms who is struggling, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense, and I think it's wonderful advice. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that you think is important for our audience? I want to make it clear that when we use the term, a lot of people, and one of the problems I have with lawyers, Monica, and even law students who you know, think they're doing well in studies is they keep readjusting what they believe is high-functioning as their performance because of addiction. They tell themselves, as long as I have not hit rock bottom, as long as there are no consequences, I haven't hit rock bottom, so everything's okay. And I understand how that is, because... If you go back to 2005, I was suicidal when I was putting a weapon in my mouth, practicing in my life, before I was finally taken on my first trip to a, a psychiatric facility. Even at, and at that point, it was not my recovery tipping point because I did not go into recovery. So we don't know when that's going to happen, and there's no way to predict. And so lawyers often keep redefining their level of being high-functioning while addiction is dragging them down lower and lower and their performance is getting worse and worse, others see it and may not want to say anything. They're afraid to say anything. You know, what associate's going to tell the name partner, hey, now there's an issue here, right? We have that stigma within law firms. So I try to encourage lawyers to not get caught up in trying to define your own rock bottom as a means of not getting help, okay? What I tell them and what I'll tell anyone is today is as good as it's ever going to get because addiction is progressive. Eventually there will be consequences and it's only going to get worse. And if you wait for consequences, it gets a lot tougher with the state bar. That is such good information. And I can't thank you enough for your candor. It's an amazing trip that you've taken and you are taking. I think you're going to help a lot of people. Uh, one last question. How long have you been in recovery? I had my 10th year in long-term recovery from drug and alcohol use on April 8, 2007. Congratulations. Thank you. I've been in recovery for over 10 years now, and it's been quite a journey of ups and downs. Well, what you're doing is important, and I'm so impressed with how kind you were to take time with us today. And again, the book is The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and redemption. I think you've inspired a lot of people, and I'm really grateful for that. Uh, before I let you go, can you let us know uh, if the listeners would like to reach out to you? Yeah. And how do they get your book? My book is available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. 
It's in some bookstores, but you're, the easiest way is to go online and get it. Uh, you can reach me at Brian with an I at addictedlawyer.com. I am open to anyone, whether you're a lawyer, law student, or just anyone in recovery. I mean, I'm always willing to give the benefit of my experience. Uh, and that's all I have is my experience, my journey. Well, it's quite a journey, and I think you're helping a lot of people, and it's just fantastic. I want to thank you so much, Brian Cuban. Hope you'll come again. I hope so, too. Thank you for the interview, Monica. Again, thank you so much, Brian, and thanks to our audience. We hope you'll join us for the next edition of Law Technology Now. like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.